Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. So far, at least. Mm-hmm. On this episode, the orchards are blooming, berry picking is around the corner for the family to enjoy, so it's time that we take a look at the nature of fruit in beer. Why do we want to add it? How do we add it? How do we, well, not add it? And how do we choose what fruit you might want to add to what sort of beer? Hopefully with a lot of careful thought. I hope so. But now... But before we do all that, we're going to have these words from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the AHA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malt House Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout, Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Welcome back, and thank you for listening to those messages from our sponsors. Remember that if you talk to any of them, if you interact with any of them, make sure that you tell them that you heard about them here on The Brew Files so they know their money is well spent. Now, fruit and beer, it's kind of a controversial topic. Some people like it. Some people don't. For me, man, it kind of just depends on how it's done. But it does have a really, really long, long history. Yeah, of of both being really good and being really bad. Yeah, right. So now, why why are people thinking about fruit and beer? Why should you think about fruit and beer? Well, it turns out people like fruits and they like fruity things. You know, fruits are bright, 
they're zippy. They speak of goodness, and I hope you're going to hear the air quotes here, health. <laughs> I heard it. I heard it. And you can trust me, like, look around. You can witness the plethora of fruit juice bars that are around. And, well, they're not so healthy smoothies that they seem to be peddling on everybody. Detox with a helping hand of sugar. In seriousness, the human palate craves acidic sensations because the way that we've evolved, the the food sources that we've had, we've come to associate acidity with sort of either freshness or high vitamin content or preserved food nature. Acidity to the human palate is a good sign. Go look at almost all your beverages out there. They all are very acidic. Wine is very acidic. Cider is very acidic. Soda is very acidic. I think about the only thing that's not acidic that we regularly drink is milk. And that's a relatively unusual thing for human beings to drink. But on the other hand, one of the things I wonder is we've also evolved to think of bitter things as bad. Poisons, a lot of toxins are, are bitter. So this kind of makes me scratch my head and wonder why in the beer world we've run counter to goodness by loving those super bitter IPAs. Because they're delicious. And some of us have death wishes. <laughs> well, there's that too. So now using fruit in beer can also help us reshape the flavors of the beer. It can soften the bite of, say, a goose, and we'll talk more about that in a bit. It can take out some of the rough characters, say, in a porter or a stout, and leave you with something that has a more interesting palate. You know, something a little more, I don't want to say candy-like, because that's not what we should go for, but, you know, something with a little bit more interest in it than just the straight beer that you've got. Denny, do you have any thoughts on other reasons why you'd want to use fruit in beer? Uh... <laughs> None that I'd care to share because I'm sure to offend somebody. If you couldn't tell, Denny is not necessarily a big fan of using fruit in beer. It just it just depends on how it's used. Some fruit beers I really like and other fruit beers not so much. Historically speaking, human beings have been using fruit, grain, honey, whatever they had on hand to make something alcoholic. And our ancestors haven't exactly been persnickety precise about their labels the line between a beer a wine a cider or something else has been a relatively fuzzy one for a very very long time and you can kind of see some of this when you look back in time and you look at like some of the the beverages that dogfish head has recreated you know based off the work of patrick mcgovern and things like uh, the chateau jihau which from uh, china nine thousand years ago in history and it's got barley honey grapes and hawthorn fruit in it along with a bunch of spices i don't know how you would classify that today yeah I, I don't either and i think that probably back then the main criteria was that it had alcohol well and also that we figured out that fermentation helps us preserve things for longer right so fruit will go rotten but if you make it into a fruit wine or into some sort of alcoholic beverage it stays around for a lot longer including some of that nutritional content and yeah it has a more fun impact yeah and it's not exactly fruit anymore at that point though really no but you still got vitamin content you got other things you know it's, and you haven't wasted this thing that you spent a lot of time gathering or growing uh-huh. if you look historically the things that survive to this day that have a sort of historical pedigree with fruit involved somehow lambic's the easy one you can see that I mean, we still have a system of classification of different lambics with different names because they have different fruits in them, you know, whether it's a framboise or a creek. Or uh, a pêche. Or a pêche. Pêche is a little less traditional, but still <laughs> yeah, the point right. stands. Yeah. You know, they still have these very set styles that have uh, fruit associated with them. 
To a certain extent, you also see it with, say, Blenderweiss, although there they do it with the syrup in the glass, you know, the raspberry syrup, for instance, a woodruff's herb, so not a fruit. Not certain. I may have heard there's a banana one as well. (laughs) That kind of makes my spine crinkle. Well, we're going to get to bananas a little bit later. Those are the two that I can think of that really survive. And of course, there have been outliers. There have been other beers with fruit in them over periods of time. But those are the two styles that to me still have a very strong traditional association with some sort of fruit addition. Those are probably uh, the ones that historically are the the ones that we look to today. And, and of course, remember, back in the day, people were throwing all sorts of stuff into their mash tuns. These days, fruit beers tend to get a bad rap. We tend to think of them as being lazy. They're candy-like. They're not beer, which I see a lot of people throwing shade at fruit beers about. Or my favorite, and arguably probably the one that I think is the most egregiously wrong, is fruit beer is for girls. (laughs) Yeah, don't tell my wife that. I was going to say, not only your wife, but I also know quite a few IPA-loving women who would – Death stare you right into the dirt if you said that in front of them. Yeah, I, I think that the the only fruit beers that my wife really enjoys are the sour ones, you know, that have fruit added to them. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that that goes to what you're saying about the fruit beers are, are candy. They're not beer. I mean, that can very well be. I mean, the, the fruit beers for girls thing came from the fact that so many people make fruit beers that are kind of sickly sweet. To the Lambic point, like we were talking about with the Pesha one, you can look at some of the Lindemans beers, and I swear some of those feel like they're Jolly Ranchers dissolved. The in the soda, soda pop, yeah. I, I don't to have to tell you the truth. Uh, I just don't consider those in the same league as, as other Lambics. And absolutely not, except for maybe the Cuvée Rene. That one's nice. Yeah. It is true that there have been lots of thoughtless fruit beers out there. Uh, things that are just trying to you know, catch your eye with a pretty color or a promise of some sort of a novel flavor. And also make a quick buck with bad ingredients. But I think with careful consideration, you can honestly make fantastic fruited beers that aren't just about being silly and aren't just necessarily confined to traditional styles. Okay, so let's talk about base beers I think work well with fruit and aren't necessarily going to be boring, even though the first choice is out the gate is probably the most boring one out there. Either a blonde ale, so yield American pub ale, which a lot of places seem to want to call a Kolsch for some reason. You know, just pale malt. Maybe a little something for color, but really just pale malt and not a lot of hops. Works wonderful as a base for fruit flavors. Can also be used to make a lot of thoughtless beers. Wheat beers. So American wheat beer in particular, you'll see all sorts of additions to those. I would also say any sort of wheat beer generally tends to lend itself to fruit. We'll talk about a fruited wit that I did later. Uh, half a Weizen might be a little bit tough because yeah, you, you have to take – yeah, yeah, you have to take – if you're going to put fruit in a half a Weizen, you have to take into account the strong flavors that are already there and find something that will complement them. I could imagine you could do bananas. <laughs> Well, duh. And I think, yeah, you're right. You want something that would play well with the clove. So something that has a a very phenolic uh, thing going on with it, like a really good blueberry, like a really good blueberry. You know what? I, I suppose strawberries could work too. Uh, you know, strawberry banana is, is definitely a thing. But strawberries yeah, – we'll talk <laughs> – we have to talk about strawberries. Yeah, it, it's pretty difficult to work with. I would say stout and porter also work pretty well with fruit. They tend to work well with a lot of auxiliary flavors because they have such bold flavors themselves that you have a lot of nooks and crannies to hide things in. And I'm going to just stop everybody right here and say, anybody prepared for a shock? 
I also think Cezanne works well with fruit. <laughs> you think Cezanne works well with anything? I know. I think Cezanne works well with mortar. <laughs> I, know. I think I think Cezanne works well with dust. One of the few fruit beers I've made was a blueberry porter. Uh, Polly grows a lot of blueberries, and so uh, I decided to try that oh, many, many years ago. Geez, it might have even been when I was still brewing extract. Um, and it, it does work well, but it's very, very subtle. I mean, you know, the rule of thumb is generally a pound of fruit per gallon of beer. With something like blueberries, uh, you could easily go 50 to 100 percent higher than that and still only be getting a really subtle blueberry flavor. Yeah. And also, I'll throw in one other one that I think is a good one because so far we've just talked about ales. I would also look at lagers and in particular – I really kind of like the idea of doing a fruited Maybach or Maybach. Hmm. That could be interesting. Yeah, just it's an interesting base. Uh, of course, I'll also drink Maybach until the end of time. So. I was, I was going to say, yeah, that's the, I love that beer so much. I would have a hard time doing anything to change the flavor of it. But, you know, you, you know how I am. You like beer-flavored beer. That's right. So my rule of thumb about doing fruit and thinking about flavors, we'll get into additions later. But thinking about flavors – the lighter, crisper, drier beers, I kind of want to lean the fruit character to the brighter, zippier flavors. Think a uh, fresh berry, mangoes, pineapples, citrus, even. You know, those things that really kind of pop with a bright acid to them. I think those go best up against lighter, crisper beers. When you get into the kind of the more robust beers, sometimes either darker or like, say, Maybach, I kind of want to go into the heartier and sweeter characters, so more dried fruits like raisins and plums and that sort of thing. Although, to Danny's point, yeah, you can hide blueberries in just about anything. Yeah, that's right. I do think the rule of thumb should be you want earthier, sweeter with your more robust beers and those brighter, zippier flavors up against your, your brighter, lighter beers. Yeah, that, that's kind of an interesting idea, putting plums into a darker beer. I, I, you know, I, I kind of like that idea. Oh, yeah. So other styles that you can do this with? <laughs> well, it's it's not it's not an American talking about beer and craft flavors and odd things to do if we don't also mention IPA. I think that largely comes from the trend of, hey, you know, if we put the letters IPA on this, it's going to sell. I, I think for years, I did not think you could combine fruit with an IPA and get it to work really well until actually uh, really when Ballast Point Sculpin first came along. And also, even older than that, Craftsman Orange Grove Pale Ale, which we'll get into in a bit. But those two really kind of said, oh, okay, great. There is a way that you can make fruit work in IPA. To my mind, what you have to do is you have to go for the complement, right? So when you talk flavors, you talk cut, complement, and contrast. And to me, complement's the one that works best with an IPA because you have such an assertive flavor from the, the hops that, to me, you want the fruit to play in with those hop characters and, and complement them. So that's the reason why I think citrus works particularly well in an IPA. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, back in the days when I could eat grapefruit, uh, I really did enjoy some of those, but it's because that there were those flavors in the hops already. So it was a complement. And then, of course, we have the milkshake IPA slash kettle sour trend. I don't mind the kettle sour so much, but the milkshake IPA thing, you see a lot of them with like world up strawberries and other things going up in there to say, Hey, look, I made a strawberry milkshake. I don't want to know you if you did that. I, I've done people have done it. Sometimes they're okay. And they're largely not my cup of tea. And then, like I said, kettle sours, I think actually works really well with fruit because again, you're playing that acid thing that you get from fruit. You see this a lot on the market actually with like say Goza's 
what Harrison Valley has like two or three gozes out there that have like blood orange and watermelon and other things in there. So I think anything playing that sour fruit angle will also actually kind of really work. So now we've talked about the beer styles that we think it works in and things that it doesn't quite work in. Let's talk about how we add it. Let's start with the forms. So these days, particularly in, in the craft world, everybody talks about fresh stuff is the king. And of course, I live here in California where we have access to fresh produce year round, massive amounts of it, amazing stuff. And frozen tends to get a little bit of a knock against it. But for the most part, if you do not have access to, you know, say the freshest of fruit, fruit in its prime and fruit that's not been shipped to, you know, picked for shipping to a grocery store. Frozen is pretty damn dandy. And it can actually be better than fresh because when they freeze it, they pick the best fruit to freeze in there. And with fresh, you know, you go out and you buy like a quart of strawberries and you get down to the bottom and the whole layer is mushy, you know. So definitely do not diss the frozen fruit. And actually, even when I use fresh fruit, I freeze it before I put it into the beer. Yeah, absolutely. So the way to use fresh fruit, in my mind, the perfect way to do it, you slice it up. Well, you wash it. You slice it up. You put that into a Ziploc bag and you throw it in your freezer. And actually here, home freezers are actually sort of at an advantage. Home freezers freeze much more slowly than commercial freezers, which commercial freezers want to do because that minimizes ice crystal growth. And ice crystals rupture cells. Well, in this case, our home freezers freeze slowly, so you get longer, sharper ice crystals, which means you're rupturing more of the cells, which means when that fruit thaws, more of the goo inside the fruit cells is coming out into the beer. You know, and I, I actually prefer to vacuum pack them before I freeze them, because that seems to help extract even more juice from them. And I will also say I don't do anything to sanitize the fruit nope. other than freezing. And freezing, uh, freezing, by the way, does not actually sanitize fruit. The stuff that's living on your fruit will live through freezing. But if you're adding to finished beer and finished beer that's had a healthy amount of yeast pitch into it, you've got a pH drop in there, you've got alcohol in there, and you've got a lot of friendly microbes that can kind of keep the bad stuff at bay. Between the pH and the alcohol in the beer, I mean, people people freak out when I say it, but that's what I do when I make my mushroom beers. I just kind of brush the dirt off the mushrooms. I don't want to wash them and put any more moisture into them. I chop them up, I put them in vacuum seal bags, I freeze them, thaw them out, use them. I have never had a problem doing that. So uh, I don't think you're going to have any problem doing that with fruit either. Other forms to add, the zest, particularly with citrus. So we're talking about just the outer, outer peel of the fruit. And in citrus, that's where all the flavor lies because all the flavor in citrus is locked up in essential oils. I'll just use a microplane, you know, one of those rasp style graters, and it just takes the very top layer of the zest off and leaves behind the bitter pith. There's a reason for using the bitter pith, but we'll get there later. And I don't do anything else with that. I'll just throw it into the beer. Um, sometimes I'll freeze it just to hold on to it and keep it fresh, or other times I'll make a tincture out of it. But really, the zest is perfectly good to go throw into the beer as well. Yeah, I was going to say, many times it's even better. You know, if you wanted to go for like an orange or grapefruit flavor, you would probably get a lot more of it out of the zest than you would out of the juice. Challenge, your, uh, challenge yourself. Go and scratch an orange see how much aroma uh, that you get, and particularly if you do it near your face, how much flavor you get on your tongue just from the peel. Compare that to the fruit, and you'll see that the fruit gives you mostly sweetness and acid. The peel is what gives you the flavor. You know, we were talking about uh, the Ale Song French 75 beer on the last episode of Experimental Brewing, and I guarantee you they use lemon zest in that, not lemon juice. Now, other forms that you can use? Dried fruit. And I would also throw freeze-dried fruit into this. You can go find packs of Trader Joe's uh, freeze-dried strawberries, raspberries, and blueberries, which are awesome. 
Uh, but dried fruit is actually a really good addition, uh, particularly with some of the fruits that we'll get into in a moment. But make sure, no matter what, that the fruit that you get is unsulfured. Oh, yes, definitely. It's going to look less pretty, but we don't care about pretty. We care about flavor, and you don't want to go tossing sulfur into your beer. No, 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 no. Other things, probably the easiest way to get fruit character into a beer, or actually second easiest way to get fruit character into a beer, puree. And you'll see like most of your homebrew stores will carry either one of either Oregon fruit puree or Vintner's Harvest. And those are aseptic purees packed in cans. And there are some other forms out there as well. But those are literally open it and pour it into the beer and go. Again, just like with the uh, frozen fruit, those are some of the freshest fruits that you can get your hands on. Then, of course, we talked about juice. Problem with juice is there's lots of water. So if you want to do juice, because water doesn't have much flavor, if you want to do juice, look for some of the uh, more high-quality concentrated juices out there. One in particular I like to use is there's a company in Michigan called King's Orchard, and they make a sour cherry juice concentrate. Sour cherries, not fruit cherries, right? So the sour pie cherries, which have a much more intense flavor, and it comes in a concentrate form, and it's fantastic. You can just pour that and go. And if you are suffering from gout, as some of us who like to drink beer and eat meat do, sour cherry juice actually does wonders for your gout. <laughs> Good to know. And, and yeah, one other thing that uh, I've been uh, kind of playing around with a little bit, I don't know if they're widely available yet, but when we were in Australia, uh, Grainfather gave us some uh, extracts that they've been playing around with. And they have a number of different flavors. A couple of them are fruit flavored. And my limited testing of them so far looks like they're pretty good. So keep your eyes open. I don't know how much they're available yet, but I think that they may be pretty soon. That rolls right into the extracts and other sorts of flavoring syrups that you can find. You know, even something as simple as the Tarani soda slash coffee syrups that you can find at the grocery store. I was going to say that the Amaretti ones are pretty good, too. I've used those a couple times. Yep. So to that point, what you want to do is you want to use a good quality extract or flavoring. So I mentioned the Tarani ones. The Tarani ones are okay, but they're they're very fake. Things like the Amaretti, those are, are really good. I really also like the Olive Nation extracts that you can get your hands on. Uh, those have a lot of potency for a very small package. Don't go for the cheapest stuff that you can find because the cheapest stuff that you find is going to end up making your beer taste, well, like flavoring chemicals. <laughs> so if you go and you get a cherry, you're going to end up with something that tastes like a Luden's cough drop and not like cherry. Hey, I like Luden's cough drops when I was a kid. Well, yeah, but I don't want that as my cherry flavor. Well, that's, a, like a, that's a pretty good point. Yeah, those are the main forms that I can think of in terms of what you can add to your beer or how you can get fruit flavor into your beer. Biggest thing I would say to remember is that you want to remember to add your fruit or your flavorings as late into the process as possible to preserve the aroma. All that CO2 evolution will take those uh, fruit flavors away from you. So as late as you can, if you're going to add to a secondary keg, I would I would cold crash, rack off. Like I said, if you're going to go into if you're going to do something with a lot of fruit juice in it or a lot of sugar, make sure you're in a bigger secondary and give it some blow off room because basically you're going to restart fermentation. And give it a couple of days to allow the yeast activity to subside and then cold crash again and take that away. If you're going to do something to keg, again, cold crash because you want to get as much of the yeast out of there as you can. And then when you actually put something in, remember that even when kept cold, fermentation still occurs. It's just very slow. We've talked about it before about breweries packaging IPAs and sour beers on fresh fruit puree. And why it's a terrible idea to go and throw that into the retail chain. 
Same thing is true of your home fridge. You don't want bottles that are going to slowly get to an explosive state. You don't want to overpressurize your kegs because you'll just pour foam. If you actually get to the point where you can actually pressurize the keg enough for it to blow up, then I'll see you on the news. <laughs> really? Don't go packaging beer with sugar in it. At least not a controlled amount of sugar. Other thoughts, Danny, about adding fruit? No, I think that your point uh, about adding it as late as possible is well taken. Uh, anything you want to get a lot of flavor out of, you need to add as late in the process as possible. So here's some lessons that I've learned over the years. Danny, you can toss in lessons that you've learned as well as you go. Great fresh fruit is great, uh, but frozen is better when fresh is just okay. Right. Kind of hit on that earlier. Yep. Because the fruits are uh, fruits are flash frozen at the peak of character. Farmer's markets are great for fruit sourcing. Uh, remember, though, that you don't care about the, the looks. You just care about the flavor. So all the ugly fruit is great. And in fact, if you go at the end of the day and you're you're very conscious about the idea that you don't care about how good the produce looks, end of the day is the time when you can score the best deals ever. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, the farmer does not want to go trucking his produce back to the farm. That doesn't help him. That's right. And at the end of the day, the, you know, the best stuff, the best looking stuff is already gone. Probably what's left will be equally good in quality. But yeah, between the fact that the, he doesn't want to take it back and he can't sell it, you can get a great deal. One time I went and I made a, a blood orange beer, and we'll talk about it in a bit. And I needed 20 to 25 pounds of fresh blood oranges. And so I went to my... So I went to my local farmer's market and I scored those 25 pounds. And at the beginning of the day, the sign on the blood orange was something like $6 a pound, $7 a pound, something dear. And I got there at the very end of the day, like 15 minutes before the close of the market. And I looked at the farmer and I was like, how much will you give me if I take 25 pounds away? And I think if I remember correctly, I ended up paying like closer to two bucks a pound. <laughs> Not bad. Yeah, exactly. For for fresh, organic Moro blood oranges, which was a hell of a steal. So definitely go at the end of the day and definitely don't worry about your looks. You just care about the flavor. Uh, amounts. This is where I usually advise people to you know start small and add more. I flip that with fruit because to me, with fruit, you want so much of the fruit character unless you're trying to really go for something subtle. So throw in all the fruit and all of it, and you're going to use more than you think about it. As Danny said earlier, like one is sort of the the subtle mark. Two to three a lot of times is uh, two to three pounds per gallon or about 250 grams to 400 grams per liter is not unusual if you're, if you're wanting to go for straight up in-your-face type flavor. Other thing that people worry about with adding fruit is any additional haze that you may cause, or at least that's what people used to worry about. I would say that you can expect some haze initially, but mostly stuff will clear with sufficient time and cold. And if you need some gelatin in there, gelatin will cure many suns. And unless you're heating your fruits to the boil, uh, I would skip over worrying about pectin haze. So pectin's a sort of a complex polysaccharide that will bind together and kind of become gelatinous and snotty and, and make hazy things and happen in the beer. If you're boiling and you're worried, you can use a bit of pectinase to, to kind of solve for some of that. Uh, you just make sure you're doing it pre-ferment. So you got to kind of plan ahead. But for the most part, like I said, don't go boil your fruit so you don't have to worry about it and you don't need any pectinase. Yeah. As we said, it's best to add fruit as late as possible. So you don't want to put it in your boil anyway. And if you don't put it in the boil, you don't need to worry about pectin. Yep. Now, other uh, lessons I've learned over the years, some fruits don't love you. They don't want to be in your beer no matter what you do. Uh, chief among those is strawberries. 
And a lot of times also the stone fruits, but we'll talk about how to get some of that flavor into your beer in a moment. Conversely, some fruits can't help but give you all the love that they've gotten. Berries in particular fall into that category. Any other lessons, Denny? Nope, uh, not really. Uh, When we get to strawberries, I mean, I have had a couple really good strawberry beers, you know, but they're they're few and far between. Strawberries are really difficult to work with, as I'm sure you'll uh, disclose. So let's go through some fruit examples and how we would use them. Uh, Apples. Grind them up, use the juice. And uh, be aware that the apple flavor is usually a relatively subtle thing, Uh, even more so if you don't have old school funky cider apples like crab apples. Uh, Arguably, the best way to capture apple flavor that people are going to recognize as apple flavor is to use frozen apple concentrate. It's a cheap trick, but it it works. Avocados. Yes, they are a fruit. No, don't do this. (laughs) Yeah, that just does not sound like a good idea. Bananas. All right, so you got to hear me out here. I know that uh, bananas sound bananas. There is a very long tradition of banana beer in Africa, particularly around, say, Rwanda and Uganda. And our good friend Joe Formanak is featured in our book Homebrew All-Stars with two banana beers, a blonde and a Russian imperial stout. And he was inspired by African banana beers to do this idea. And what he does is he peels and mashes in 10 pounds or so of bananas with some base malt and uses, you know, basically the base malt to convert all the bananas into sugar and then throws that in with the rest of his mash and proceeds as usual. And he swears up and down that his banana Russian Imperial Stout is amazing. If you want the recipe, go pick up a copy of Homebrew All-Stars at Amazon or your nearest finest book retailer. Yeah, you know, I have a hard time imagining how bananas in the mash would come through. But being Joe, if he says it works, I'm going to believe him. Berries. With the exception of strawberries, which are not actually a berry. Um, I forget their exact classification, but they're not a berry. And actually, for that matter, neither are blackberries or raspberries. But they're still more berry-like than anything else. Berries work into your beers like they were meant to be there. I, I don't think I've ever figured out a way to really screw up getting berry flavor into anything, except for just not using enough. Right. Freeze them, dry them, do whatever it is. Just get them into the secondary or get them into the keg. You'll have berry flavor. Strawberries. My usual advice about strawberries is just don't because it doesn't matter what you do in a lot of ways. It just, it's really incredibly difficult to get strawberry flavor to actually go into beer and stick around. I had friends who brewed uh, a strawberry pilsner for the Oxnard Strawberry Festival not too far away from here. And they used somewhere around three pounds of strawberries per gallon. And then they added in strawberry puree and didn't get a strong strawberry flavor. So they then went and they got strawberry flavoring and added that. And it was the only way they could get fresh strawberry flavor to hang in there. But you said that you had some ideas. Well, no, I don't. All I'm saying is I've had some beers where strawberries were well done. I I don't know how the people did them, uh, but whatever they did, it it worked. Um, Whether or not I cared for the beer is a completely different matter to the fact that they had a good strawberry flavor in it. Moving on, citrus. Almost every citrus out there works like a charm. And again, most of your flavor is actually in the peel. So those essential oils is what you want. Don't worry about the juice. It's acid and sugar. I think like all of the fruited IPAs, citrus, citrus still works best as it plays into what we expect from the hops. 
And as I was mentioning, one of our oldest craft breweries in LA, Craftsman Brewing Company here in Pasadena, uh, either does or did, I can't remember if they're still there, an Orange Grove Pale Ale, where Mark, the head brewer, chucked whole oranges into a commercial food processor to make a slurry. And when I say whole oranges, I mean flesh, juice, seeds, rind, zest, pith, and any branches and leaves that happen to fall into the mix as well. The cool thing about that slurry was he would add that into the beer in, in I think, late boil, and the pith actually provided a really interesting bitter bite to it. And then there were also all those bright sort of citrus notes in there, including a little bit of like marmalade type tones to it. So really kind of nice, and we'll get into a citrus IPA in a moment. Uh, dried fruits, things like uh, raisins and prunes and uh, whatnot, they are fantastic additions to darker, heavier beers. I know some brewers like to get all fancy and heat them up with port. Uh, I'm talking of uh, Lost Abbey. They like to fry their raisins with port. I, I don't know if you actually really need to do that, but hey, whatever. I'm okay with just chucking them in. Although actually uh, thinking about it in terms of the citrus that we just talked about, doing some reconstitution in orange juice would actually be kind of interesting. You know, I have used uh, raisins and prunes both in uh, Belgian dark strongs and doubles. And what I do is I set a wok on top of my uh, brewing burner, my propane burner, heat it up till that sucker is red hot. Um, Throw the raisins in and just wait for them to break down, deglaze with a little bit of the beer, uh, and then put that whole thing into a secondary and rack the beer onto it. And man, those flavors work really, really well. And putting them in the wok first to concentrate the flavors is a great step. And then I had a cheat where I did raisins once in some Sailor Jerry spiced rum and added these reconstituted spiced raisins into the boil and the flavor actually came through amazingly well and as a bonus also made for some really tasty rum wow <laughs> all right now let's go from raisins to their fresher cousins grapes and specifically we're really going to talk about wine grapes and not like concord grapes you know no welches here and as denny mentioned we talked to ale song and ale song does a number of grape beers because they have the close association with the wineries. I think grapes work wonderfully. I think they work particularly wonderfully in saisons and farmhouse ales, which is where I've mostly played around with them. I think you want that earthiness from the those yeasts to, to happen there. And look, it's probably tricky for most people to get their hands on good quality fresh wine grapes. Uh, but if you can, do it. Alternatively, you can purchase frozen grapes, but neither of these options are cheap. So just keep that in mind, but you can get, at least if you're anywhere near a grape growing region, you can usually find a way to get your hands on some decent grapes. The easiest solution for most people is to get your hands on a wine kit with a concentrated juice. Our good friends at Brewcraft USA, Country Malt Group, you'll remember from a couple of HomebrewCon shows ago, they have a wide selection of wine kits that can produce some really, really nice wines. Uh, those might make, again, an expensive approach to this, but there is also another one, a company out there called California Concentrates. They make a super syrupy concentrate that's both cheaper and available in smaller quantities, and it's called Alexander Sun Country. And it comes in multiple varieties. They have like Chardonnay, Merlot, a generic red blend, etc. I'm not a huge fan of the wine made from those concentrates because it always feels a little cooked to me. But a single four-pound can of that concentrate actually will provide plenty of grapey 
oomph to your beer. And we'll get into one that I did with that. The other thing is if you do get a chance to make fresh wine from fresh grapes and you don't really feel like shelling out the 100 plus bucks for the additional poundage of grapes, kind of take a, a hint from some of our ancestors who would make, you know, say a, a second wine. They would make a, 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 a second press wine, right? And what they would do is they would take the leftover juice, you know, the, the really pressed juice, which has some more tannin and other characters to it, and they would rewash the grapes with some water and then press those again and then add sugar to it. Well, you can kind of do something very similar with leftover pumice from winemaking and flavor a beer as well. Remember, you're not going to get this big, fresh, bright, fruity character from it, but you'll get some very deep, interesting, earthy grape characters to it. And if you wanted to, you could even take it a step further. Most of what we talked about here is using juice. Uh, but when you're making those sort of second press wines, a lot of times they'll also include the grapes in with the juice and the sugar wash just to extract some additional character. You can do that here with your beer as well, uh, but that may be more effort than it's worth to you. This one also has the added advantage. If you have friends who are making wine or you, know, you live near a winery, you can always ask them if you can have some of their pumice. And more than likely, they'll give it to you and you can have some fun. Thoughts about grapes? Uh, you know, I've had some delicious beers from Ailsong that use grape juice. They're right next door to a winery. They get it fresh and organic, and it's great. So like everything else we've talked about, if you can get the good stuff, use it. But yeah, don't put Welch's in there. No, that'd be a terrible idea. Yeah. Stone fruits, as we talked about uh, up above, they can be a little tricky. So stone fruits are peaches and apricots and things like that. They're kind of tricky to capture because the flavor is so fleeting, just kind of like strawberries, right? It just doesn't hold very well in the in the beer. So outside of extract and flavoring, which can either be great or cloying and off-putting, you can best capture them, I think, by using dried fruits. So the best luck I've had getting apricot flavor and peach flavor into a beer, not using the flavoring or extract, has actually been using the dried fruit and allowing them to reconstitute in the cold beer. I think, to my mind, I get a better impact that way. I know some people are out there, they use a ton of fresh peaches and they'll get something. I think it holds on better when you use dried peaches, but also not to knock on the flavorings and extract here. I have a friend who produces every year an apricot lager and he just uses three ounces of the flavoring that's available from Brewcraft USA. Works pretty well, at least for a party situation. Oh, and again, follow up on the point because it is very important for you to remember, use unsulfured fruit. If you're going to use dried fruit, use unsulfured fruit. Otherwise, you're going to have to do a lot to get that sulfur back out of the beer. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't even want to go there. And last category we're going to cover today is tropical fruits, and that covers your things like pineapple, guava, mango, passion fruit, etc. I think these all go brilliantly into anything with wheat and anything that's sour. To me, they almost make an instant tropical party. Um, I've, I've pureed them, and I just use them as a puree. Um, I usually will freeze the puree just to give it a little extra help, too. Uh, make sure you've got good fruit. A lot of times, if I have something that's overripe in the mango or the passion fruit or the guava market, it ends up tasting like death, like something kind of rotten and not really living. So don't do that. But now thinking about pineapples and guava and mango and all that, I kind of want to go make a pina colada beer with some coconut. <laughs> you know, I've never tried making a pineapple beer, but I hear they can be difficult also. Yeah, th those you have to puree. There's uh, at least a, the way I'm thinking about it. You're, you have to make juice out of them. Well, I'm I'm th I'm thinking flavor wise. Uh, I've heard people oh, say, "Oh, because it's, well, it's so acid, it's so acidic." Exactly. But 
it might be interesting. So those are the fruits. Uh, anything, anything other categories of fruit that you think we need to cover today? Uh, you know, I, I think that you've done a wonderful job in covering everything. Well, we'll wait until we get feedback. <laughs> yeah, right. So, all right, let's get into some example recipes here. Just a couple of real quick ones. I used to make a raspberry wit for my wife from time to time. And when we first got together, she liked kind of softer Belgian beers. And so I kind of set up to make her something for the summer. And I made a, a wit beer because to me, that's kind of an interesting beer. I think it plays very well with fruit. And I did uh, raspberries. I did a lot of the puree, basically, you know, a can or two of the Oregon puree is what I used for this. And it would make it nice and pink because my wife likes pink as a color. And it's just a classic wit beer with 50% pills, 42% wheat and 8% oats. So very, very classical spiced with a bit of Indian coriander. And I skipped over the bitter orange peel because I figured I was going to get the bitterness and acidity from the raspberry puree. And so I used uh, 64 ounces of raspberry puree. And after the high poison had started to fall off, that's when I added the, the raspberry puree to let it kind of kick back up and continue fermenting. I also tended to add a, a sneaky touch of black pepper just to kind of give it a little extra bite. And the initial version had about 5% alcohol and had 20 IBUs of just magnum for bittering. As times changed, uh, my wife started to get into sort of more bolder beers uh, with a little bit more oomph behind them. So I would start to make a Grand Cru version of this with an increased malt bill that took it from 5 to 8.5%. And so really nice kind of raspberry base on that, but still a lot of flavor underneath it as well. Have to get into a Saison real quick because I teased it earlier. Blood Orange Saison, or I call my Saison uh, Sangreal. Take the Saison Experimental right? The one that I make all the time, which is basically nine pounds of pills, a half pound of wheat malt, and a pound of sugar. Uh, hop it with a half ounce of magnum. Juice 20 to 25 pounds of blood oranges. <laughs> well, I'd get a friend to help you. Or in this case, a KitchenAid a juicing attachment. Well, that too. Uh, freeze the juice. I would also zest at least three of the oranges and kind of just uh, either freeze that zest or I'd make a tincture out of it by soaking it in some vodka. Pitch the beer with Y yeast 3711, the French Saison yeast, because in this particular case, I need some extra body in the beer. Ferment and then dose with the juice in secondary and allow that to finish fermenting. Add the zest or the tincture, keg. Now, if you want to go uh, like a Saison Vin, you know, a grape Saison, instead of doing, start with the exact same base, but instead of using the juice and zest, use that can of Alexander's Sun Country and allow that to kind of go you'll actually get even more kind of a, a gravity boost um, or maybe add another another bigger gravity boost by adding five more pounds of Pilsner in the in the base and add some oak cubes soaked in red wine to really make the beer even more complex. And for our last example today, we're going to talk a Citrus Bomb IPA. Start with our basic American recipe that's right there on the website. So 13 pounds of pale malt, one pound of Munich malt, and a half pound of crystal, uh, 60 and that's just for your standard five-gallon batch. Sub out the 1.2 ounces of uh, CTZ as the bittering charge with the equivalent IBU load of Centennial. And the reason for that is I want uh, I want more fruit and I want less pine. So Centennial is sort of super cascade, right? So after that bittering charge of Centennial, everything else in the beer is either Centennial or cascade. And that plays really, really well in here. Then take about one pound of citrus per gallon. And I actually like a mix. Don't go heavy on the lime. I don't think the lime works as well in this. But oranges, lemons, grapefruit, 
Uh, and to Denny's point, be careful of the grapefruit if you've got anybody around you with heart meds. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And if you want to do like what Craftsman does with their Orange Grove Pale Ale, chuck the fruit into either a food processor, a juicer, or one of those uh, super powerful Willet Blend blenders that everybody seems to be a fan of these days. And blend it up. And I mean, take everything. If you're using one of those juicers that separates the dross away, you know, take some of that dross and kind of hold it off to the side and mix it back in if you want some of that bitterness from the pith. Chill your wort to 170, and that's when I would add the puree because it's just to get some sanitation on it. Let that roll pull for 20 minutes with some extra hops if you so feel like it. Chill, pitch, and go for a big old citrus bomb of an IPA. You might also want to have some fruit on the side that you're holding off to to add some zest or a tincture of zest into the final product when you actually get it ready to go into keg or bottle. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. So there you go. There's really four different fruit beer recipes that present a couple of different flavor options. Didn't cover a dark one today. Sorry, guys. But this is fruit. Fruit is good for you. All of our doctors keep telling us to eat more fruit. So what better way to eat your fruit than to have it in a beer? So you're not eating your fruit. You're drinking your fruit. Same difference. <laughs> Vitamins. Vitamins, dang it. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this dive into a pool of fruit juice. It's possible to make a fruit beer that doesn't suck. It's actually really possible with some thought and care to make a fruit beer that's absolutely amazing. So how are you going to take advantage of our incoming bounty and make a beer that sings? Uh, I think that the really important point there is thought and care. Don't just go chucking fruit into a beer and go, hey, I made a fruit beer. Think about what flavors go with what and how you're going to approach it to get the most out of that fruit and to get the most harmonious blend out of it. Um, um see i knew you'd like that remember if you have show ideas styles brewers techniques ingredients etc you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com you can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com you can find us on twitter at exp brewing on instagram on facebook and reddit and just about every homebrew forum known out there to mankind and of course you can also find us at www.experimentalbrew.com don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA Brewswag.com code word experimental, Amazon Brewers Friends or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It is called Wings of Rescue, a wonderful 501c3 all-volunteer organization that flies pets from uh, shelters where they'll probably be euthanized to no-kill shelters. Uh, we're saving animals here, people, and you can help, so please kick in a couple bucks. Until next time, remember to always brew wacky. Or brew experimentally. And the brew is out there. Explore the history of tart, fruity, and refreshing Goza-style beer with the latest book from Brewer's Publication, Goza. Brewing a Classic German Beer for the Modern Era. Written by award-winning veteran brewer Fal Allen, Goza includes 27 recipes, including Sea Quench Sour from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery and Ruben Brewer's 2017 Great American Beer Festival gold medal-winning Goza. Right now, Brewer's Publications is giving experimental homebrewing listeners a discount on Goza. Go to brewerspublications.com and use code EXPERIMENTAL to take 20% off Goza. That's right, you'll save 20% when you use code EXPERIMENTAL at brewerspublications.com. Brewer's Publications.